First Thessalonians chapter one and a, a passage of scripture dealing with the subject of thankfulness, really a prayer of thankfulness by the Apostle Paul in this opening chapter. And it's instructive for us uh, for many reasons, maybe chief among them would just be the whole necessity of gratitude on this anniversary or near anniversary of the Reformation. I thought it would be appropriate to start with Martin Luther who said that gratitude is the basic Christian attitude, the basic framework of mind for a Christian is thankfulness. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, uh, you may or may not know the great preacher of the uh, revivals, the great revivals in America, Great Awakening, wrote a book called uh, A Treatise Concerning Religious Affections. And in that, he says that gratitude and thankfulness of God are the truest signs of religion. Edwards said that the affection of gratitude is the most accurate way of seeing the presence of God in someone's life. And the reason for that is because it is the appropriate response to grace. Grace being God's undeserved favor, His unmerited favor in our life. When you really understand and really contemplate what grace is really all about, there is no reasonable response other than gratitude. It's one of the key ways that you can see a Christian, and by the way, one of the key ways you can see an unbeliever. The Bible says that unbelievers are marked, Romans chapter 1, by an unthankfulness, a lack of gratitude. So whenever we open up to one of Paul's letters, and this letter particularly in Thessalonians, and we find him repeatedly writing prayers, extensive prayers of thanksgiving, it ought not strike us as anything extraordinary or unusual. In fact, it ought to be the ordinary pattern of every life of every believer to talk regularly about the things of which he or she is grateful. And 1 Thessalonians 1 is really no exception to that. Paul, just like he does in nearly all of his letters, opens up writing to the church and gushing forth with what he is thankful for. And this is not just some mere convention of letter writing. You will find occasionally some greetings and some standard forms, just like we have in our own letters of today. And uh, there's some of that in Paul's writings. But, But whenever he comes forth with these long prayers of thanksgiving, this isn't just some convention of letter writing. You know, here's Paul to you and thanks. We know that because there's so much variation in everything that Paul's writing, that these aren't just cordial remarks. This is really an expression of his genuine heart, the things that he truly felt that came out in all of the letters, except for, of course, Galatians, where he was not thankful because of their unfaithfulness, uh, or at least their wavering in the face of, of a false doctrine. But apart from that, what you have are, are these long prayers in Paul's letters of thankfulness that give us tremendous insight into what captured his heart and his mind and what energized his prayers. And as we come to Paul's prayer here this morning in Thessalonians, what we find is one that is especially instructive because it is a prayer of thankfulness for the church, in this situation, the Thessalonican church or the Thessalonian church. He was genuinely grateful, deeply 
grateful for this church. As I said last week, it all flowed out of his experience with the church, which was unfortunately brief and brought to such an abrupt end because of persecution from the Jews. He had been run out of town, forced down to the town of Berea, and not satisfied with that alone, they chased him down there and ran him out of Berea until he had to flee to Athens. And he was so torn up, so burdened by what was going on there, what might have been left behind in the aftermath of all the persecution, that from Athens he dispatches his friends, particularly Timothy, to go back to Thessalonica and to find out how they're doing. And he eventually moves on to Corinth where he is rejoined by Timothy who gives a favorable report, tells him the church is doing great and he writes them this letter and in the opening chapter in verse 2 says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He's chosen you because our gospel came to you not in, only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers, all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Here is Paul with his opening line, his letter to this church after he gets the report of how they're doing. And he just gushes forth with this exceeding gratitude, unquenchable gratitude, so that he was always, in all of his prayers, opening them up and giving thanks to God. And it's particularly noteworthy for us why he is grateful, why he was so grateful for this particular church. What what made his gratitude so vivacious and so strong for the church? I mean, he knew that they were a young church. He knew that they had their imperfections. He knew that they still had their immaturities. In fact, he says over in chapter 3, verse 9, he says there, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul was thankful even knowing that there were deficiencies in this church, even knowing that there were things that were lacking, even knowing that there were still needs and still immaturities and still ways that the church needed to grow. And yet he was still so thankful for this yet imperfect church. There were things that were just constantly welling up in his heart. What are they? I mean, what are those things They were so important, so vital in this church that Paul looked at and he could ignore all the other imperfections and he could see these things and he could be so overwhelmed with thankfulness 
for the church. I mean, some people, when you ask them about their church, they're thankful for its programs and they're thankful for its, you know, kids' ministry. They're thankful for its buildings or its budgets. They're thankful that their church takes a stand on social issues or on political issues or, or whatever it might be. But Paul doesn't mention any of that stuff. When he thought about the Thessalonian church or any church, what were those qualities that were important to him? The qualities that made him really grateful? Well, he gives us, I think, three of them in this opening chapter. And we'll take a couple weeks to, to move through them because there's so much here that is helpful for us as we develop our own prayer life, as we develop our own kind of thanksgiving. To focus on what is important and what is a blessing in the church. One long prayer of thanksgiving with these critical qualities of the Thessalonian church. The reasons why he was grateful. The reasons why anyone should be grateful if they find these things in their church. The first one is this. There in verses 2 and really in verse 3. And that is the motives of their ministry. The motives of their ministry. We give thanks, he says, always for you, constantly mentioning in our prayers. Why? Remembering before our God and Father three things. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness in hope. Work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness in hope. Or we might say work that was produced by faith... Labor that was produced by love and steadfastness that was produced by hope. That's the way the language unfolds there. Three things that Paul remembers, he says. I remember, I saw these things when I was with you. It might have been only three or four months, but these things were already visible among you. And it was by observation and no doubt by confirmation now as Timothy has come back. That they were a church that was busy, they were working, they were laboring, they were enduring and whatever they were doing. But it wasn't just that. What made Paul so grateful wasn't that he just saw a busy church, but he saw a church that was engaged in all of this work with the right kinds of motivations. He knew where all of this activity was coming from. He had confidence in that. And that's what stirred him to so much gratefulness. He understood, he could sense that there was motivation behind their labor. And it was motivated by faith, by hope, and by love. You may recognize those, that well-known triad of Christian virtues. Faith, hope, and love. Paul mentions them a number of times. What's interesting here is, as I mentioned uh, to you last week, This is probably Paul's earliest letter that we have record of. And so we find out from the very beginning how important these three virtues were in the the Christian walk. How important they were in the framework of the church. Faith, hope, and love. Or as Paul gives them here, faith, love, and hope. They are the cardinal virtues. They're Famously, of course, recorded for us in the poem of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Now remain these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. That famous chapter that has been captured in so many songs and plaques and, uh, and uh, you know, displays all over the place. Uh, people call it the poem of love. 
But there's nothing poetical necessarily about what Paul is giving us here. These are virtues that weren't on display in some beautiful handbook of poetry or some lyrical song. These were virtues that were being worked out in toil and sweat and tears in the midst of persecution and trial and hardship. They were the, they were the, the engine, the, the catalyst behind what was driving this church so much through its difficulties, all that it was facing. Paul not only mentions them here, he tells the Colossians, as he would write some almost ten years later, he gave thanks for them because he had heard of your, he says in Colossians 1.4, he says, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Uh, Much later, the writer of Hebrews will say in chapter 10 of his letter, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And so you just you can read through. We could we could turn to other chapters of Scripture in Galatians and in in uh, Timothy. We could turn to other places and see that this triad of virtues of faith and hope and love were the bedrock of the Christian life. They were the bedrock of the church. And so Paul is looking back on this church and he's giving thanks because amongst all the other things that he knew they still needed to grow in, he saw. The, the very core and necessary elements of these things being practically worked out in the life of the body. And so despite all the deficiencies and despite his desire to go back and help them and see them face to face and help them grow, he could look and he'd say, you know what, I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude because what I see whenever I see you, what I think of whenever I remember you, what I, what I have, have filling my heart is these things, your faith and your love and your hope. And I see it practically in all of these these ways. Later on in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, Paul will remind them of the importance of maintaining this. In fact, he'll tell them to dress themselves in this way. There in verse... um, Verse 7, or yes, verse 7, those who sleep, he says, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. And since we belong to today, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. He didn't want them to lose this. I mean, he wanted this to be something that would mark their life and their church all of their days. At this point, he's grateful. He's grateful that he had, that he had seen, that he had experienced, that he could remember and constantly thank the Lord that these things became so evident through his experience with them. I want us to look at these, take special note just of 
how they are working themselves out, at least in the way that Paul expresses them here. Special note of the unique ways that Paul talks about these motives in their ministry and what what they produced, if you will. First of all, he mentions their work of faith, your work which was produced by faith. Or we might even say your work that gives evidence of your faith. Your work that gives evidence of the fact that you believe God. A work that gives evidence of the fact that you believe in Christ. As, as Luther said, this is the, the chief of all Christian attitudes. Paul grounded this as well in the most basic definition of Christianity, which is that of believing. Believing, having faith, produces this this, uh, this, this kind of work going uh, out of you, this kind of response to God that recognizes you have received so much and wants to respond, I'm sure, in their own hearts with thankfulness back to Him. They want to respond with work. Or we might say in the words of James, they, this uh, Thessalonian church, did not have a dead faith. You remember that expression James says in James chapter 2? Faith, he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. This is what Paul's saying. I know your faith is not dead. I I can look back and I can be so thankful when I think about your church because what I see is your faith. It's visible in the kinds of things that you do, the kind of deeds, the kind of activity in your life. He had only been with them a short time, but he could think back to the way that their faith impacted their lives. It changed them, it changed their behavior, it changed their works, because that's what faith does. At least genuine faith. Genuine faith produces certain visible fruits and works. Paul told the Ephesians, remember, in that well-known verse in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of your deeds, not as something that you earn by your deeds, not by being good enough before God. He says this is a way we're saved, but then he goes on and he adds to that, saying you are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's the, that's the completion of that idea. So you're saved by grace through faith, and that process of salvation was God's work. But God's work didn't end simply there. His work continues, he says, in a workmanship creating you in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
These good works that God prepared beforehand, which is a phrase, by the way, that's used by the Apostle Paul in other places of the New Testament to describe something before the foundations of the world. So this were, uh, these, were, these were works that God had ordained, God had crafted, God had made for you to walk in before the foundation of the world. This is the complete picture of what God desires faith to be. This is why James says, look, you got faith and uh, I've got faith. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works because that's really the only way you can see them. You can see it. That's really the only way you can confirm it. Some of you here may think that you have faith. Some of you here may imagine that you believe But when you look at your life, you look for the evidences, there's nothing there. There are no works. Your life is in no way different than any other person in the world who doesn't have faith. You get up, you go to work every day, you do your job, you make your money, you come home, you mow your grass, you clean your dishes, you go to bed, you get up the next day, and that's your life. There are no works of faith going on necessarily there there's nothing that makes you any different you might be a moral person you might stay away from certain taboos but there's nothing in your life that your faith is changing you and making you different Paul says he saw a difference in them he saw the way their faith changed them this is salvation You can't think about salvation just in terms of what it takes away. It takes away hell. It takes away condemnation. It takes away sin. Because it's also salvation in its totality, its complete work, is also something that God adds. He takes away your condemnation. But then He adds newness of life. What we sometimes call the new birth. Being born again. This is what the gospel brings. This is what Christ brings. He brings a a working faith. A faith that actually produces certain kinds of behavior. As we say sometimes, God regenerates us. He causes us to be born again. He takes us from death to life. And that life gives evidences. This is what Paul says he saw in them. This is what he was so grateful for. Genuine faith that produces good works. Charles Spurgeon says, If the professed convert distinctly and deliberately declares that he knows the Lord's will but does not mean to attend to it with good works, You're not to pamper his presuppositions, but it is your duty to assure him that he is not saved. That's Spurgeon. He could have confidence looking at somebody who doesn't have these works and he could say, there is no reason, no reason for me to conclude that you're saved. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Titus 2 Christ Jesus gave Himself for us 
so that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Listen, if no one's ever told you this before, let me be crystal clear on this, that if you have a faith that does nothing to produce these kinds of works within you, your faith is dead. It's dead. As James says, even the demons believe. Even they acknowledge that God exists, but it doesn't change them. To simply say, I believe, to simply say, I believe that God exists, that's not enough. There has to be change. Something that is mirrored in your life. And so Paul says here, I'm thankful because when I look back on my brief time with you, I I wasn't there but just a couple of months, but I could see the evidence. I I could see flowing out of your heart of faith a certain kind of work that was produced. Now, he doesn't tell us what that is here in the letter. It might have been acts of kindness toward one another. It might have been simply their faithfulness in serving in the church. It might have been their witness and their testimony. It probably involved a little bit of all of that. But Paul is saying your faith was definitely visible in the ways that you spent your time, in the ways that you used your tongue, in the ways that you set your uh, uh, priorities and invested your life. He was thankful for a church that wasn't just a spectator church. They were engaged, they were contributing, they were doing, they were working for the sake of the kingdom. That's the kind of church you ought to be grateful for. Full of people who when you look around, you may spot still their imperfections, but you see still the definitive fruit of their faith. You can see their deeds. There's an authenticity to the church, an authenticity that is seen through this kind of work. I think about that when I think about Faith Community Church. I see it all around, people not only serving here on a Sunday morning with our teardown and set up, but people serving throughout the week, engaged in one another's lives, counseling one another, serving one another, encouraging one another, praying together going out and sharing their faith. I'm thankful to be a part of a church that has such an abundance of evidence of genuine faith. That's a great thing. That's a great thing. That causes my heart to rejoice. But Paul doesn't leave it just there. He mentions a second thing that caused his heart to rejoice with this church. And that is their labor of love. Obviously, this is related to the first idea. You have work and you have labor. But Paul uses a different word here for labor. More importantly, a different motivation that he's identifying. This is labor in the sense of toil and, and wearisome effort. The word is kopu, from which we get copious. Much like English, it implies a certain kind of burden and exhaustion and heavy kind of task. So Paul is not simply saying that they were engaged in a few convenient activities. He's not looking at them and seeing in them some some, um, religion of convenience. This wasn't just an hour uh, serving in the annual church picnic, uh, giving out drinks. This isn't the kind of faith that he saw in these people. What he's describing was the kind of engagement 
from the body, from the, from the people in the church, the kind of involvement in task and toil that drew, we might say, their total concentration. There was a kind of inconvenience to everything that they were doing. The ministry was burdensome, it was inconvenient, it was difficult, it was weighty, it might have been complicated, it might have been messy at times, it was costly, it was fatiguing. All of that is wrapped up in this idea of, of kopu, of copious kind of, of efforts. In other words, this wasn't a group of people looking for, the, for the, uh, the entertainment value of their local church. They weren't just spectators, as we said, and they weren't looking for the low-hanging fruit of Christian ministry. Some things that you do sometimes in the church might be pleasant, they might be stimulating, but there are kinds of ministry that involve sacrifice and suffering. This is what Paul has in mind. The kind of ministry that involves getting up early or sometimes staying up late. The kind of ministry that involves rearranging your priorities and your schedule. The kind of ministry that involves saying no to some luxuries and delaying some of your own plans. It involves difficult people and difficult situations. It is toilsome and it is copious. But Paul says, I'm constantly thanking God in my prayers, because this is what I saw in you. I saw an intensity. I saw a sacrifice. I saw a toilsome kind of ministry. And what is most important is where Paul says it came from. This intensive labor, he says, was evidence of a love that was in your heart. It was a labor of love. It came out of a heart of love. And this isn't some romantic idea within modern culture. This is agape love. The kind of self-sacrificial love which was best demonstrated in Christ. You remember he says in John 15, Greater love has no man than this. That he lay down his life for his friends. That's the definition of this kind of love. A sacrificial laying down, pouring out, crucifying of yourself for the sake of others. So many people sit around and just ponder in self-pity all of their grumblings and complaining because of their, their lack of fulfillment in whatever. Well, this isn't about fulfillment. This is about sacrifice. And Paul says, I saw it. I saw this taking place. In you, the kind of love that God demonstrated when, he says in Romans, His love toward us was demonstrated in that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, He gave Himself. He died for us. Paul's saying, this is what I saw. I saw the evidence of this kind of love in your life. I saw love working itself out in this kind of toilsome toilsome ministry. I saw you laying aside yourself, laying down your life, setting aside your priorities, uh, interrupting your agenda, uh, laboring for the sake of other people. By the way, this is eventually over in chapter 2. You'll see where Paul says there in verse 8 about his own ministry. He says, being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but even our own selves or even our own lives. 
because you had become so dear to us. So Paul laid down his own life, he says, when he was with them because of the love that filled his heart towards you. He says, you were dear to us. And because of that love that welled up in my heart, he says, we gave ourselves. Or if you have your Bibles, look with me over at John. 1 John chapter 3. One of the greatest expositions on this whole subject that you'll find anywhere in Scripture, 1 John chapter 3, in verse 11. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So he's, he's reminding them of the Lord's words, probably from John uh, 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another, and by this all people will know that you're my disciples. So, so he's saying, look, this is the very beginning. This is what the Lord emphasized. This was at the preeminent place, the first place, the priority in his ministry. This is what you heard, that we should love one another. We should not be, he says in verse 12, like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. He says he, he, he lashed out at him. Why? Not because his brother's deeds were bad, but because his own were bad. He wanted to cover up his own sin. Do not be surprised, he says, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever doesn't love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in in him. Verse 16, by this we know love that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So He sets a contrast here between Cain, who was the supreme example of a lack of love, a supreme example, we might say, of hatred, and he turns to Christ, who is the supreme example of love. And this contrast couldn't be more stark between Cain, who robbed a man of his life, and Christ, who freely gave up his life for the sake of others. Between a man who took the life of another and a man who gave his life for others. And he says, this is what we learn from the gospel. This is what Christ teaches us. The fundamental definition. By this, he says, look at verse 16. By this we know love. This, uh, this is the definition. Every other definition you hear of is a sham. Every other place that you read about or see or are instructed about love, all, everything else, if it doesn't conform to this, it is a cheap substitute. This is how you know what love is. Christ laid down His life. He laid down His life. And so we ought to do the same thing. It won't necessarily be in a single heroic act in a moment of time. It won't necessarily be in a spotlight. It'll be the daily sacrifice of yourself. Or you'll notice even the way John says it in verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need 
and yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love will manifest itself not in mere words, not in just talk. It won't be something you just say on a Sunday morning. It won't be just a Sunday school lesson. It won't be a greeting in the hallway and it won't be a pat on the back and it won't be a few words of assurance that you'll pray for somebody. You will lay down your life. You'll lay down your interest. You'll lay down your agenda. You'll lay down your luxuries for the sake of others. This is what love will be. When you first of all have knowledge, that is you see your brother in need, and then when you second of all have resources, you have the world's goods, you will demonstrate again and again your willingness to use whatever resources you might have. Some of you may not have tremendous uh, material resources, but the needs of people are not always material. They are time, they are counsel, they are friendship, they are fellowship. And as a believer, you will be constantly demonstrating this path of laying down yourself to minister to others. When the Lord came to Cain, you remember Genesis? He asked him, where's Abel, your brother? And Cain famously said, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? God's answer is clear, yes. Yes, you are. Look around, the ones next to you, you're your brother's keeper, your sister's keeper. And if you have the love of God in you, if God's love has been something you've come to understand, if it's been shed abroad in your heart, if you see the example of Christ, you heard this from the beginning, you ought to love one another. So back over in Thessalonians, this is what Paul saw. He saw this in the Thessalonians. It just made him so filled with gratitude that he could think back and he, this wasn't just some concept. He looked into the life of this church and what he saw were examples of people laying down their life, giving up of their, of their conveniences, giving up of themselves. And he recognized that this was not natural. This wasn't something that was a human impulse. This was something that was supernatural because their hearts had been filled with the love of God. And so they, they entered into the most difficult task of ministry because of the love of Christ. They had a labor of love. And I'm constantly making mention of it in my prayers. With thanksgiving, he says. And then finally, he adds, there was a steadfastness about them. A steadfastness of hope in the Lord, in our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to spend a lot of time here, but Paul is saying that he was giving thanks again because when he looked back, he remembered something that he saw in them. And what he saw was an endurance. What he saw was a steadfastness. What he saw was a steadiness. Now, he saw this, obviously, because the situation required it. Because they had to have endurance. You remember, they were, they were born in the midst of difficult and dark times. They were born right in the midst of 
persecution as a church. And so they had to have some endurance to get through it. They were thrown immediately into trials as soon as they came to faith. The Jews were stirring up a mob and falsely accusing the brothers, dragging Jason out and causing the the, uh, Christians there, forcing them to put up a financial bond to the city to guarantee that their, their church would not start any riots or any kind of upheaval in the city. And so they were facing persecution. They were facing tremendous financial strain. And yet Paul says, in the midst of all that difficulty, you endured. You stood there. You went through it. You you weren't faced. You kept on doing the work of the ministry. And why is that, he says? Why is it? Well, it was because they had hope. They had hope. This isn't hope like, you know, we use wishful thinking. I hope my team wins, you know, next week or whatever. This is confidence. That's hope in the New Testament. Confidence, certainty that what God has said about the future He'll do. Confidence that you ought to have in your heart that what God said about the future He will do. Confidence in His promises that brace you against all the opposition, all the persecution, all the trials, all the difficulties. Because we know that we are already more than conquerors. You ask yourself, am I going to get through this situation? Am I going to, am I going to make it through this trial? Am I, going to, am I going to get out on the other side? You ought to say, absolutely I will. Whether in death or in life. Because no matter what happens, I'm already more than a conqueror. I'm already a victor because of Christ. Because He's promised on His return, He'll raise me from the dead along with Himself and give me a place in His kingdom. So what can man do to you? As Jesus says, do not fear Him who can destroy the body, but fear Him who can destroy the soul forever in hell. We're not afraid of whatever may come. Because we are confident in the Lord's promises. And so Paul says, look, I'm continually thanking God because what I saw is your church get thrown into adversity, get thrown into uh, persecution, get thrown into trial. And you displayed a kind of endurance through that. A kind of, of fearlessness. In the work of the ministry, in the work of the kingdom, the going does sometimes get tough. At times it requires a certain kind of endurance. It's a beautiful thing when a church displays it, when it faces hard times and just keeps on going. And Paul says, you know, I'm grateful. I give thanks because that's what I saw. Your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll return to this down in verse 10 and expand on it once again. But just... Basically, he says, because of the favor and the reward that you know is coming, you endure. You know, so many people never even get an opportunity to display this. They never get an opportunity to display this Christian virtue. They never get an opportunity to stir this kind of gratitude because they always run away during the trial. They're always fleeing. They're always looking for the easier place. Some circumstance that's not as challenging to their faith, some situation 
that doesn't demand any kind of sacrifice or hardship. Something that, 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 that won't take them to the end of their resources where they get to the point where they say, you know, I, I don't know what else to do but to pray. Some people just run away from that. And so they never really have to show endurance. But there are others who even during dark times fill their heart with hope, fill their heart with joy, fill their heart with expectation because of what is coming at the return of Christ. Not because they're indifferent, it's not because they don't hurt, and it's not because it's not painful to them, but they are motivated by a hope, and so they endure. They stand fast. There are a lot of things you might be thankful for in a church. A lot of things that you may enjoy, or not enjoy, really. But I hope, I hope at the very core, you can find these qualities. I hope that when you look around, this is what you take in the most. Is you see people who are giving evidence of genuine faith. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. That you see people who are not living for themselves, but are sacrificially laying down their life, enduring inconveniences for the sake of the ministry. And that you see people who are willing to endure, to stand the test. Because their hope is not in this world, but in Christ. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. And just a word to you if you're here this morning and you hear all of this, talking about the church, talking about these kinds of people, and you're lost as you can be. Not just in the sermon, I'm just talking about you're lost, you don't know God. Now all this stuff doesn't make any sense to you because you don't have any faith. And you don't have any work and you don't have any evidence. Listen, our challenge to you this morning is that you would respond to the call of God. He says to us, He gives us the the assurance that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This morning we encourage you to recognize that you're under the wrath of God that He's willing to forgive. If you'll respond to Him, then He will cover your sins, wipe them away, receive you to Himself, and grant you eternal life. Father, we're grateful for this gospel, so thankful for how it has impacted our life. And we're grateful for what you have done among us as a church to the extent that we have seen these things and indeed we have. We're so grateful. I pray that you would fill us with deeper and deeper gratitude for the work of faith going on all around us, for the labors of love that are on display, for the steadfastness born out of hope in the heart's of your children. Lord, we want to we see that. We want to rejoice with that. We want it to fill our prayers with thanksgiving. And so we pray for you to do that work among us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.